I'll uh, invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and Ephesians chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6 and uh, Ephesians chapter 6. If um, uh, our um, uh, midweek services were a little bit interrupted for the holidays and scheduled and so forth, before uh, we took a break for the holidays, I was teaching a series uh, that um, uh, I entitled Faith Seminar, just because I didn't know what what else to call it. Didn't know exactly where I was going to go on the subject of faith. And I thought maybe I'd be done with it uh, when we took a break for the holidays, but I'm not through with it yet. So tonight I want to continue along uh, the lines of faith, and um, uh, I don't know how much further we're going to go. I don't really have a plan for it. I'm just going to take it week by week, and uh, we'll see where we come up. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul writing to Timothy, who is a minister of the gospel. Certainly he's already saved. And he said, fight the good fight of faith. Verse 12, 1 Timothy six twelve. fight the good fight of faith. What does that tell us? First and foremost, it tells us faith is a fight. Now, I believe there's, uh, uh, well, there are two different ways that the Bible in the New Testament talks about faith. It talks about the Christian life, faith in a general sense as a Christian life, and then it talks about faith in a specific sense, believing God for a specific benefit or a specific blessing. And, uh, and I think this applies to both because certainly you know that there's, a, there's an enemy that will try to hinder you from, from living a good, solid Christian life. And you also know that there's an enemy that will try to keep you from receiving the blessings that Jesus purchased for you. So where he says, fight the good fight of faith, I don't know exactly which one he's talking about. I, I'm, I'm inclined to think that he's talking about the, uh, the, uh, the Christian life as a whole. But as I said, it applies specifically as well as generally. So he says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Now, in that context, he can't be saying, Timothy, if you don't live a good Christian life, you're not going to lay hold on, on salvation. Because Timothy's already saved. See, if, if we were just to identify that as a Christian life, the faith as being a general Christian life, then, then uh, Paul, we'd have to conclude that Paul's talking about works. Because if you, if you, if you live good enough, if you work uh, hard enough, if you do everything right, then you'll lay hold on eternal life. Well, he's got eternal life now. Right? So he's got to be talking about something more than that. And again, I think it applies both generally as well as specifically. But he's saying there is a fight to faith without which you won't lay hold on the blessings of God that Jesus already purchased for you. He's not talking about being saved. He's not talking about going to heaven or hell. He's saying if you don't fight effectively, if you don't fight the good fight of faith, I don't know what kind of fight there is that can be good unless there's one that you win. I've never been in any kind of athletic contest or any other kind of contest where I was satisfied with just a good effort. Now, you say things like that. You lose and you say, well, we gave it our best. And it eats away at you on the inside. Anybody that's willing to lose is a loser. So no matter what good face you put on it, nobody's happy with that. It's not a good fight unless you win. Well, I, th- I believe that since God's the one that put that inside of us, I believe that's what Paul's, Paul's talking about here by the Holy Ghost. Fight the good fight of faith. In other words, fight a winning fight. Now, what is, the, what is the victory? What's the prize? What do you win if you win this good fight of faith? Whatever it is that you're trying to lay hold on, whatever blessings of God that Jesus has already purchased for you, it comes through the fight of the, the good fight or fighting effectively this faith battle. Now, with that in mind, turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. He gives some of the most concise and complete information about church doctrine of any of the letters that he wrote. 
And he sums it up in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He said, finally, my brethren. Now, everything else he's told them and all the things that he's uh, written to the church about uh, how to conduct church and, and doctrine and, and so forth, church doctrine and, and, and so forth. He says, now I'm going to sum it up. I want to leave the, the best for last, the most important thing for last. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Now, what would being strong in the Lord and in the power of his might be if it's not the good fight of faith? Let me say it this way. It's impossible for you to be strong in the Lord unless you're fighting the good fight of faith, laying hold on eternal life, meaning the blessings of God, those things that Jesus has purchased for you. Now, when he says be strong in the Lord, if he's talking about victory, then he means to fight effectively, to fight the winning fight to receive all that God has for you. What else could it be? How else could you be strong in the Lord? Could you be strong in the Lord and lose every battle you enter into? No. You can lose it in your own strength. But if you're going to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, you're going to win. In every situation, you're going to overcome. You're going to walk in the blessings of God no matter what the circumstances are. Wouldn't that have to be true? Are you out there? Are you with me? I want you to see this. He's talking about the same thing both to Timothy and the church at Ephesus. Here's how you fight the winning fight. You choose to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Now, notice it doesn't say one thing about you being strong in you. See, the devil will come and sit on people's shoulder and say, well, yeah, but you're not strong like brother so-and-so over there is. It has nothing to do with how strong he is or how strong you are. It says be strong in the Lord. Is there any way to be strong in the Lord and not fight effectively in faith? Is there any way to be strong in the Lord and be weak in faith? It's impossible. He's got to be talking about the same things. So he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might because God wants you to win. And he's going to give you information about how to do that. In other words, he's going to define how to fight the good fight of faith. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You know how to be strong in the Lord. You know how to fight the good fight of faith effectively and win every time. Put on the armor of God. Put on the armor of God. Now, this armor of God must be effective. It must be successful. It must be good enough to handle anything and everything the devil does or else Paul did us a disservice by only giving us one element or one aspect of this good fight of faith. But it's only one thing that he tells us to do. He says the only thing, that the, the, the key element, the important thing to fight the good fight of faith is to put on the whole armor of God. Now, he knows who these people are. He started this church. He got these people saved, many of them at least. He spent almost three years at Ephesus. He had one of the greatest revivals in the city of Ephesus of any place that he ever went to. He knows these people. He knows what they've been taught. He knows the foundation that he laid. He knows who they are. He knows that he taught them to believe God. He taught them what Jesus did for us, them included. And he taught them how to believe God. So he's telling people that he knows that are in faith. He's commended them for their faith earlier in the chapter. Or early in the in the uh, the letter, he's commended them. He's told them the things that they've done right, the things that they're doing well. So he says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Don't give up your strength. In other words, maintain your strength, the faith. Fight effectively by putting on the whole armor of God. And it goes on to say that you may be able, for this purpose, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, you may have heard me say this before, but it's important to say every time we read the verse. The word wiles simply means trickery. It, all, it literally means traveling over. 
It means to travel over. In other words, it says put on the whole armor of God that you'll be able to defend in the one way that the devil works. The one road that the devil travels. Now, what road is that? Well, it defines it. The word itself is a, has a secondary definition of trickery or deceit. I want you to understand something, folks. The only thing the devil can do is trick you or deceive you. That's the only thing he can do. If he can't trick you, if he can't deceive you, he cannot win your fight of faith. He cannot stop you from having the blessings that the Bible says are yours. Well, I wish that would sink in on us. If we would just come to understand that, unless we are deceived in some way, some, some manner, some form, unless we are deceived, there is no way the devil can stop what Jesus has already purchased for us. That means healing, that means blessings, prosperity, financial blessings. It means peace, it means every aspect, every need that you might have in your life. It means the all spiritual blessings that are you're blessed with in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is no way it's impossible for the devil to stop those from coming to you unless he deceives you. Are you with me? There's only one road he travels. It's the road of deception. It goes on to say, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, or against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. In other words, flesh and blood can't stop the blessings of God from coming to you. That's not part of your fight. The good fight of faith has nothing to do with what somebody does or does not do. Somebody on the earth I'm talking about. It's impossible for your blessings to be hindered or stopped or prevented by somebody that's flesh and blood. That's not who the fight is with. Your fight is a spiritual fight. It's a spiritual battle. And so what are we supposed to do since it is a spiritual battle? It's a battle in the unseen realm. What are we supposed to do? Verse 13, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. He's telling you twice. Here's the reason. He's just explained flesh and blood is not your problem. And the armor of God will defeat your spiritual enemies. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having all done all to stand, stand therefore. And then he tells us what the armor is. Having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always. Praying always. Notice he's saying the armor equips you to pray. Now, I'd like to point something out to you, folks. The pieces of the armor, truth doesn't grow. Truth is the word of God. It never changes. It doesn't grow. Righteousness doesn't grow. Now, our knowledge of the truth can grow. Our knowledge of our righteousness can grow, but truth and righteousness don't grow. Peace doesn't grow either. Yet Peter, writing to the church, said grace and peace are multiplied to us. How? Through the knowledge of him that called you. The glory and virtue. The knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's he talking about? He's talking about knowledge. Peace doesn't grow, but our knowledge of it does. Do you know the only way faith grows? Faith in and of itself doesn't grow because faith is based on the word. Faith grows through knowledge and experience. But faith itself doesn't change. Your attitude toward it changes. Your knowledge of what faith will do changes. The next is the helmet of salvation. Salvation doesn't grow. 
It doesn't change. It's the same as when Jesus purchased it for us 2,000 years ago. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, never changes. I want you to notice something, folks. This, this armor, the pieces of this armor, only increase, only adjust, not in reality, but in, for us and in our own situation, one and only one way, and that's through knowledge. What I want to get across to you is very simply this. Please, please, please understand this. The armor of the Lord is mental. The key to fighting the good fight of faith, the key to being strong in the Lord and the power of his might is your mind. Let me, think, let me present it to you this way. When you get to heaven, whether you partook of the blessings of God outside of just uh, remission of sins or not, salvation is the same for you either way. You have two people standing side by side. One gets great rewards because they walked in faith. They walked according to the word. They walked in obedience to what the Bible says belongs to them. They get great rewards. The other person gets saved at the same exact time, spent exactly the same amount of days here on the earth and get nothing. What makes the difference? They had the same salvation, had the same word, had the same righteousness, had the same access or opportunity for peace, faith, and so forth. What makes the difference? What makes the difference is what they choose to take hold of. What makes the determination in what you choose to take hold of? Your mind. Because your mind is the determinant for your will. Please understand this. If you, never, if you don't get anything else out of this, please get this. The mind is the battleground of faith. Not the heart. Because the heart will do what, it's, what the will directs it to do. The mind is the battleground of faith. Now, with that in mind, turn back with me to Mark chapter 4. We've looked at this parable a lot. But I want you to see it in this context tonight, too. Jesus tells about the, the parable of the sower sowing the word. The disciples come to him afterwards and say, what does this mean? And he answers them. Verse 11, he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Many other translations use this word. Instead of this word mystery, they'll translate it secret. Unto you it is given to know the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, if you look the word up, it means literally the, the word that's translated mystery or, or as translated sacred in other translations. The word means to shut the mouth. It's talking about something that's silenced, something that's kept as a secret by those that know so that those on the outside don't know. And Jesus even said basically the same thing. He said, unto you it's given to know the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to throw this out there for everybody just to pick up casually. You're going to have to want to know it. Now, what does it mean, the secret or the mysteries of the kingdom of God? Well, anything and everything that belongs to the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying, unto you it's given to know the secret of healing. Unto you it's given to know the secret of prosperity. Unto you it's given to know the secret of walking in peace. Unto you it's given to know the secret of salvation. Unto you it's given to know the secret of righteousness. He's saying everything that belongs to the kingdom of God, everything that is a part of the kingdom of God, everything that Jesus purchased for us, everything that he obtained through his death, burial, and resurrection, which in, at their point in time, the point in time that he said this was yet to come, but for us it's past tense, it's in the past. Everything that's a part of what Jesus did, every spiritual blessing that's ours in heavenly places, every one of those, this is the secret to. 
This is the secret to anything and everything you'll ever need from God. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Are you out there? Just nod or something every now and then. Let me know that you're still there. I mean, if I'm going too fast or if I'm not making myself plain, let me know so I can back up and go over it again. I want to make sure you're getting this because this is huge, folks. This is the difference between victory and defeat. He said, here's the secret. Here's the secret for anything and everything you'll ever need from God. Then he tells the story. We won't go through the whole thing. We'll just kind of hit some of the high spots. The sower sows the word. The ground is different types of people. In other words, he's saying the word of God will produce different results in different people. Now, what determines what results any one individual will have? What determines those results is the attention that they give to it. Notice the work of the devil. The work of the devil in the wayside is to immediately take away the word that was sown. In other words, to deceive the hearer from accepting it. But in every other part of the, the, um, uh, the ground, the types of ground, the two other types of ground, the stony ground and the thorny ground that don't produce any results, his work is to choke out the word. So if the traveling over, the wiles of the devil, the trickery of the devil, the deceit of the devil, we could summarize by saying it's two, it involves two things, either stopping the word from being received or trying to choke it out. That's the only way the devil works. Jesus said so. He said this is the secret to the kingdom of God. Well, the secret to the kingdom of God is identified to Timothy and to the Ephesians as fighting the good fight of faith or being strong in the Lord, isn't it? He's got to be talking about the same things, folks. Got to be. And he said, here's how the devil works. Here's the road the devil travels. He either tries to take the word from ever taking root, steal the word before it ever takes root, deceive somebody from hearing it and accepting it to be the truth or to choke it out once it's planted. That's it. That's all the devil can do. That's what he does to you and me. And that is the fight of faith. And let me show you how that works. Turn with me over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Now we already know that the armor of God is mental. It's a part of our mind. It's the renewing of our mind to the truth. So therefore, we could understand that the devil trying to either take away the word before it or as soon as it's sown or choke out the word once it is planted is going to be connected to mental attacks. The devil doesn't have access to your spirit. The Bible says your spirit is God's. Your spirit is the, the uh, uh, your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost because the body is, is the temple of your own spirit. The devil cannot get to your spirit. So what does he do? He tries to influence your spiritual action through your mind. Notice what uh, James said writing to the church. Uh, verse 21, James 1, verse 21, he said, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. In other words, don't let anything keep you from accepting the word as truth. Receive with meekness. Meekness means to be teachable. Have a teachable spirit, a teachable attitude. Allow the word of God to take root. That's what engrafted means. It means to take root. Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now, he's writing to Christians. 
He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about the renewing of the mind. The saving of the soul is the renewing of the mind. Their spirits are already made new. They're new creatures in Christ Jesus because he's writing to brethren. So he's not talking about salvation from sin. He's talking about the renewing of your mind. He's talking about the, the, the right thinking that brings us into the truth of God's blessings. So he says, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Now, we already know that deception is the devil's one road that he travels, right? Let me ask you a question. Here's a question the Holy Ghost asked me this afternoon. What's the difference in self-deception and being deceived of the devil? As soon as he asked me, I knew the answer. I never had thought about it before, but as soon as he asked me, I instantly knew the answer. Do you know what the answer is? Do you know what the difference is being deceived of the devil and self-deceived? Do you know what the difference is? It's the two ways the devil operates. Deceived of the devil is to keep somebody in ignorance. Hosea 4, 6 says, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. The devil deceives people by keeping them from ever coming to the knowledge of the truth. Paul wrote that to the Corinthians. He said, the God of this world blinds the minds of them that... Uh, lest they should receive the glorious light of the gospel and come into the kingdom, kingdom of God. Deceived of the devil means he keeps somebody through ignorance, keeps them from the knowledge of the truth. What, therefore, is self-deception? Self-deception is when somebody hears the truth and fails to take hold on it. See, deceived of the devil means he can keep you from ever finding out what the truth is. Self-deceived is once you hear the truth, the devil chokes it out, gets you interested in other things, makes, brings mental attacks against you so that you don't take hold of it and act on it. Same thing he's talking about over in Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 4. Same thing Jesus told us about in the parable of the sower sowing the word. I would submit to you that the, the stony ground and the thorny ground were self-deceived by James' terminology. The wayside were devil deceived he stole away the word immediately before it was sown in their hearts but the stony ground and the thorny ground where the word was choked out and failed to produce those people were self-deceived james said but be ye doers of the word and hearers only not hearers only deceiving your own selves and he's going to describe what it's like for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer self-deceived here's what a self-deceived person is like he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So what's the thing about self-deception? What is the thing that, that the devil will try to influence, us, uh, influence people to try to choke the word to bring them into a self-deceived position after they've heard the truth, after they already know what the Bible says? What is his method of operation to try to rob the word or rob the blessing of the word? from being realized in somebody's life. It's mental. He tries to make them forget who they are. Now, forget does not just mean, oh, gee, I forgot about that. It slipped my mind. Forget means you give your attention to something else other than what you saw in the mirror. Now, please understand something, folks. The mirror he's talking about is the Word of God. God's Word is God's image of you. God doesn't see you the way you see yourself in most cases, at least until you renew your mind to the truth. You may look at yourself as weak and broke and sickly and, and so forth, 
because that may be your physical circumstances. That's not the way God looks at you. I'm convinced that there are a lot of times that people go to God in prayer and talk about things that God doesn't even know who, what they're talking about. Oh, Lord, help me because I'm so weak. He doesn't see you as weak. He can't relate to your confession of being weak. And I would further su- uh, submit, it's my idea at least, I'm not sure exactly how this works, but I can't imagine that it, it, anything other than God getting tired of people quoting the devil to him. Because that's exactly what happens when we tell God how we feel. That's exactly what happens when we tell God what we think about ourselves that doesn't line up with what the word is. And if God was in the business, and I've done this myself, I've made the mistake in times past, many years ago, and I know that God never talked to me about quoting the devil to him. But if he was not such a gentleman, I'm sure that he would speak up and say, would you please quit quoting my enemy? Because God sees you the way the word says. Well, why don't we see ourselves the way the word says? We allow the devil's influence to to cause us to be self-deceived. See, forgetting what manner of man you are is a choice. It's not something the devil makes you do. He can't make you do it. But what do we see from Mark chapter 4? We see that he uses circumstances, persecution, affliction, Lots of other things, cares of this world, and so forth. He uses circumstances to try to influence you to what end? To forget what manner of man you are. To forget what God said about you. Are you with me? Do you see what James is saying by the Holy Ghost? He's saying anybody that is not a doer of the word, anybody that is not somebody that takes what the Bible says about them and puts it in practice in their life immediately is self-deceived. For he beholdeth him, if he may be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in the glass. The word is the mirror that shows us who we are. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Why do, what makes us forget? But in most cases, it's not a matter of, like I said, something slipping our mind. It's a matter of us refusing to keep continue, continue to consider what the Bible says about us. If the Bible says you're healed, even if the doctor says you're not, if God cannot lie and the word of God says that you're healed, you've got a choice to make. You've got a choice to make how, on how you're going to see yourself. Proverbs chapter 4 verse uh, 20 says, My son, attend unto my words. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Verse 21 says, uh, um, Keep them in the midst of your heart. Let them not depart from before your eyes. Verse 22 goes on to say, For they, they my words are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Verse 21 is a phrase I want you to see. Let them, my words, not depart from before your eyes. What does that mean? The Jews made a ritual of this. They, called, uh, they created what I think is called phylacteries. And they're little boxes with strings around them that people that uh, Orthodox Jews wear on their head because they're trying to keep some, word, some commandment of God to keep the word before their eyes. Well, that does no good at all. God's not talking about keep it on your forehead. He's not talking about tie it around your, your, your head. He's talking about see yourself with what the Bible says is yours. See yourself with the answer. 
see yourself with the answer. Now, folks, please understand, we're talking about mental images. See yourself with the answer. Brother Hagin said that was the last hurdle for him to, to, uh, to jump to receive his healing. He said he had been told by the doctors that he couldn't live and, and this was wrong and that was wrong and he had a blood disease and had a deformed heart and all this other kind of stuff. He said, I would see myself. I'd lay under bed and see myself in a casket and everybody around the casket and them shoveling dirt on top of me after they lowered it down. I would see the seasons change on my grave. He said, I came to the understanding and it was just being led by the Holy Ghost, I guess. He said, I came to the understanding that I've got to change that picture. If I can't get that picture of death and dying out of my mind, he said, I'm not going to make it. He said, that was the hardest thing for him to do. The rest of it was easy. It's easy to say the right thing. It's a hard thing to think the right thing after you say it. And that's the battleground. That's the difference between fighting the good fight of faith or winning the battle and losing the battle. It's in the mind. Now, the reason the devil works in your mind is because he's trying to influence your actions. He's trying to influence your words. And he does that through mental images. He tries to bring pressure from the outside. He may try to bring affliction. He may try to bring, you know, he may make sure that the doctor says, well, I don't know what this is, but it looks like it could be cancer. Somebody was in the healing line the other night and they said uh, the doctor was trying to convince them that they had cancer. I thought, well, isn't that a blessing? Thanks a lot, doc. Have you been diagnosed with cancer? No, but the doctor tells me that it might be. What's, it, what's happening? I don't doubt that the doctor's a good person. Maybe he's a well-meaning individual, whatever the case is. But the devil uses words, uses people's ideas, uses, he influences people's thoughts to bring mental images, pictures, for the purpose of changing the way you see yourself to contradict with what the Bible says is yours. Are you out there? But, verse 25, here's how to walk in the word. Here's how to be a doer of the word. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, here's the word of God, like a mirror, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of this work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. What does he mean to continue therein? To refuse to forget what the word says about him. To see himself the way the Bible says he is. To see himself the way the Bible says he is. Turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4. The last two verses of the chapter, verses 17 and 18. Paul said, for our light affliction, the suffering and the trouble we have here on the earth, which is but for a moment, temporary, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The word weight is interesting because the Bible talks about, uh, uh, in, in many cases, in many applications, both Old Testament and New Testament, it talks about heaviness. It talks about God and heaviness and so forth. It's not talking about heaviness like we're d- depressed or something like that. It's talking about the glory of God having weight to it. Now, the picture is, uh, the picture primarily in the Old Testament the picture that's uh, the word picture that's painted from this word and the use of this word is uh, uh, as it was used in old in, in uh, olden days with kings and so forth. You ever heard the term "worth your weight in gold"? Do you know where that came from? In olden days, kings 
would be honored by other kings and other other realms and, and things like that with gold in amounts equal to their weight. And in many cases, many kingdoms, they'd have these giant scales set up to where the king would set up, set up on this thing and, and they'd put, keep putting gold on this thing until the scale balanced out. Well, as a result, a lot of ancient kings were just huge. They'd eat and eat and eat because that meant more, king, more gold for the kingdom. Well, that's the picture that the Bible talks about, the weight of glory. It's talking about the heaviness, not heaviness and sadness or anything like that, but heaviness according to blessings. And here where it says Paul, Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost, he's using that ancient picture. He says, our light affliction, the trouble that we find ourselves in here on the earth, which is just temporary, it's just for a moment. Not only will it not last through eternity, it won't even last throughout your lifetime. Works for us a far more exceeding weight an eternal weight of glory. In other words, he's talking about the trouble that we find ourselves in will end up, will result in great glory. Now, a lot of times people will stop right there. A lot of people's doctrine is to stop right there and just think, well, okay, then trouble makes us better. But he's not through talking. Verse 18 says, while. In other words, if you want the trouble that you're going through, if you want the fight of faith, the affliction, the persecution, the, and the, the, uh, the trappings of the devil. The deceitfulness of the devil, whether it's self-deceived or, or deceived by him. If you want those things and the attacks and the, the fight that you fight to work for you so that you receive the blessings and come out on top, you're going to have to do what verse 18 says. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far, uh, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While, everybody say while. In other words, it won't work unless you do what verse 18 says. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Where do you see those things, whether it's seen or not seen? You see them in your mind. Folks, the mind is the battleground of faith. Not the heart. The mind is the battleground of faith. Satan won't attack your heart. He will attack your mind. His purpose is to attack your mind so that you will he, to influence your actions or your speech so that it will affect the, the thing that your heart produces. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. Temporal means subject to change. The things which are not seen, the things which are seen, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In other words, he's saying unseen things will change things that you can see. Unseen things change what you can see, but they won't work. Those unseen things won't work for you unless you're looking at them. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 4. Here's a good example of that in action. The Bible tells us to be followers of Abraham. He's the father of our faith. Verse 17, it tells us about God's dealings with Abraham concerning the birth of Isaac when Abraham was about 100 years old. As it is written, here's what is written in the Old Testament. Here's the, the thing that God said to Abraham. I have made thee the father of many nations. Please notice that's past tense. It is written that God said, I have made you the father of nations. In other words, the word of God created a picture for Abraham that he had the opportunity to look at. He had a chance to see himself, had the opportunity. I hate to use the word chance, but you know what I mean. 
God gave him the opportunity through his words, through the promise that he made to him. Well, it really wasn't a promise. It's God making a declaration. Through the statement that God made, God has given Abraham the opportunity to see himself differently in his mind than what his physical circumstances are telling him. He's 100 years old, doesn't have the child that God has promised, yet God said, I have made thee the father of nations. What is he going to choose to act on? He can go either way. God didn't force it to be. He could go either way. He could look at what God said and then turn back and look at the circumstances and say, yeah, but, you know, there's a a natural law at work here, a natural law that never changes. When you get too old to have kids, you're just too old to have kids. I mean, and after all, God made our bodies. There's all kinds of ways he could rationalize this, folks, just like you and I can. God said, I have made thee the father of many nations. What's the difference in that and God saying, I have made you prosperous? What's the difference in God telling Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations when he didn't have a child and he was 100 years old, too old to have kids, naturally speaking? What's the difference in God saying, you are healed by the stripes of Jesus and what he told Abraham? What's the difference? Get any other promise, any other thing you want to believe for, whatever Jesus has purchased for us, what's the difference in God saying, through the work of Jesus, this has been done, and him telling Abraham, I have made you the father of nations? There's no difference. And you'll notice that everything that God says is yours is already spoken of in the past tense. Nowhere does God say, because Jesus went to the cross, I will do this. It's all, you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in, in heavenly places. You have been blessed. It's all done. It's accomplished. It's already set. Just like he told Abraham. And the choice is the same for you as it is for me. Now, it's easy to stand up and say, yes, I believe that I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. Yes, I believe I'm prosperous because the chastisement of peace was upon Jesus. Praise the Lord. The peace is mine. The peace of God is mine and so forth. You can make all kinds of confessions. The question is, what are you going to look at after you say it? Because the battleground of faith is not the moment of your confession. The battleground of faith comes after you confess the word, after you say what you desire to receive. The battle then takes place in the mind because that's the road that the devil travels. What is he doing? He's going to try to bring you to deception. He's going to try to trick you. If he couldn't stop the word from being planted, he's going to try to get you into a self-deceived position. Meaning even though you know what the truth is, even though you've got the picture that God has painted for you, even though God has said, this is how I see you, he's going to try to get you to look at yourself in a different way. And please notice, that condition is not the devil's doing, it's yours. It's the difference in self-deception for receiving victory. You sure are quiet. You still with me? As it is written, I have made thee the father of nations before him. The word before him literally means like unto him. In the Greek, it means like unto him. King James is kind of blind on this, but it's saying, God said, I have made thee the father of many nations, and Abraham was like God in this respect. He was like God in this respect. Well, what respect was Abraham like God? Well, it says that God... Who quickens the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Abraham was like God in that he said about himself what God said he had already done. In other words, Abraham chose to say what God said 
I am the father of many nations. I have been made the father of many nations. God kind of sealed the deal when he changed his name. Because now Abraham, every time Sarah calls him for dinner, Abraham, come to dinner. She's calling him the father of many nations. Every time he calls Sarah by name, he's calling her the mother of many nations. They're saying about themselves what God said about them. What are they doing? They're keeping the image that God painted through the declaration that he made about who they are. They're keeping that image before their eyes. They're seeing themselves with the answer. Now, don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm sure every day, many times a day, the devil's right there bugging them just like he bugs you and me. You don't really think you're going to be the father of many nations, do you? Every time he's got the same opportunity, what's he going to do? He's going to have to either keep that picture of being the father of nations in his eyes, meaning is in the mental image, or the devil's going to talk him out of taking advantage of what God said. It's a mental battle, folks. And it's a mental battle for the purpose of influencing you to change your actions or your speech. Because if the devil can't get you to change what you say about God's word, if he can't get you to act contrary to what God's word says to do or the way to operate, he cannot stop your blessing. It's impossible. He doesn't have that ability. He doesn't have that power. It's not up to him. It's up to you. So Abraham was like unto God. Who called the things that be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope. The hope that he's talking about here is. Who against or without any natural hope. Based on his circumstances. There is a physical law in motion. He's too old to have kids. His body's not functioning that way anymore. But he believed in hope outside of that. He chose to believe in something else. Well what did he believe in? He believed according to that which was spoken. In other words. Look at it like this. Hope is the mental image that you have. Hope is the mental image. Remember the Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for. Hope is the mental image that you have. If you turn loose of the, the, of the, the mental image of success, you've lost hope. That's what people do. People lose hope, meaning they see themselves as defeated. They see that, that tomorrow is going to be the, uh, just as bad as today was. And the day after that is going to be just as bad or worse. And so people lose heart. People lose heart based on mental images. Not just circumstances. You can find people that have been in worse circumstances than you and I will ever enter into. Ever experience. Circumstances can be overcome. But you can't overcome somebody who's lost heart or lost hope. I mean those as interchangeable terms. You can't overcome somebody who refuses to see themselves ever doing any better than they're doing now. Folks, you need to understand something. The, the business world has invested gazillions of dollars and found that how somebody sees themselves depends on the success, is dependent on the success they're going to have. Their success will only be to the degree that they see themselves succeeding. So they come up with all kinds of gimmicks and, and stuff like that to try to make people think they're successful. Look in the mirror and say, today's a great day and you're a winner. Well, what's that based on? That very seldom ever works. They may, they may convince themselves for a, a short term. But if there's no basis, if there's no foundation for them to believe that it's true, very few people will ever, ever conquer the feeling or the, the image of failure that they have on the inside of themselves. 
But business has figured it out. Business knows that if somebody sees themselves as successful, if you can trick somebody into thinking they're going to be a success or that they are a success, they will be a success. Well, we don't have to trick ourselves because God's word is true. But the, truth, the same truth applies, and that is if you don't see yourself as, a, as a, a success, if you don't see yourself victorious, even though God's word says so, if you don't take the time and the effort to put the word of God on the inside of you, to say it enough to where it changes the mental image you have of yourself, you're never going to have any hope. That's what Abraham did. Abraham chose to speak God's word sufficiently enough times to where it changed the picture that he had of himself so that even though the natural circumstances are painting him a picture of failure where having a child is concerned, God's word painted a picture of success and he let let God's picture override the physical image. Who against hope, without any natural circumstances to have hope, believed in hope. Where did that hope come from? According to that which was spoken. According to that which was spoken. And being not weak in faith, he considered. The word considered means to look at, to behold or to gaze upon. Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. Do you know what that means? That means he chose not to look at the picture of being too old to have a son. He chose not to look at that picture. I'm sure the devil was there every day with the picture. Probably asking him every morning, how do you feel today? Feel any younger than you did yesterday? You look terrible. He chose not to look at it. Folks, Abraham's fight of faith was the same fight you and I have, and it's a mental fight. It's a fight against images of failure and defeat. Being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not confess that he wasn't 100. He didn't confess that Sarah's not 90. He didn't confess anything about their physical circumstances. He said what God said. Verse 20. I like verse 20 from the American Standard. It says, but looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. Looking under the promise of God. Well, it has, to be, it has to mean that because if he's not considering or looking at his own body now dead, he's got to be looking at something else. What else is he looking at if he's not looking at his physical condition? Looking under the promise of God, he staggered or wavered not through unbelief but was strong in faith. What does it tell us that strong faith does? Strong faith looks at the promise. Strong faith has a mental image of success and victory instead of failure and defeat. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. I would submit to you folks that you cannot give God glory for something you don't see. I'm not talking about seeing with your natural eye. I'm talking about seeing from within. You will not give God glory unless you have a picture of the thing you're glorifying him for. You cannot be fully persuaded that what God has promised he's able also to perform unless you have the mental image on the inside of you of the promise of God being realized. It's impossible. You can't do it. You can't do it. Now, you may start off that way. You may start off saying, well, thank you, Lord, that I'm healed. Thank you, Lord, that I'm healed. And all you see is sickness. But you keep saying it enough and you'll get the mental image 
By the stripes of Jesus, I was healed. You quote the word enough, and you'll get God's picture on the inside of you. That's what Abraham did. Looking under the promise of God, he wavered or staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. What is Abraham doing? He's looking at things that are not seen. That's why his fight of faith worked for him far exceeding an eternal weight of glory. Look at the blessings that came to Abraham. Look at the blessing and the honor that God bestowed on Abraham as the father of faith, father of faith because he won his faith battle. He fought the good fight of faith. How did he do that? By looking at the promise of God, having the mental image of victory and success instead of failure and defeat. He put on the whole armor of God. How did he do that? By training, focusing his mind on the answer, seeing himself with the answer instead of seeing himself in failure. And to do anything other than that is to be self-deceived once you hear and know the truth. Folks, I got to tell you, we got a lot of self-deceived Christians out there. You got a lot of self-deceived Christians in faith circles. But remember what Paul told the Ephesians. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That shield of faith, Abraham was strong in faith looking under the promise of God. It's what made him strong in faith. That shield of faith can quench every fiery dart of the wicked. What do you think the fiery darts of the wicked are? Mental images. Circumstances designed to change the way you see yourself from what God's word says to how things appear around you. And the shield of faith will quench every one of those fiery darts, but not unless you look at the right things. Now, folks, this is not a matter of intelligence. Everybody has the intelligence, the ability to look at what they choose to see. To look at what they choose to see. Turn with me, finally, let me close with this. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You need to realize there are things that are going on around you that are laws, physical and natural laws. But just Abraham had a natural law working against him. He had a natural law concerning his age. He had a natural law concerning the diminishing capacity of his flesh where having children and childbirth was concerned. Sarah had the same thing. There are natural laws. In most cases, situations of sickness are that sickness is working according to natural laws in the body. But you need to realize something. There are unseen laws, unseen forces that change natural laws. For example, any of you ever uh, flown on an airplane? Do you realize that the law of gravity affects us all? The law of gravity is like the law of sin and death. It holds every one of us here to the earth. Yet that law of gravity can be overcome. That law of gravity can be overcome by the mixture of two other unseen forces. One is thrust and the other is lift. Now thrust in and of it by itself won't do it. But if an airplane gets up to 70 miles an hour because of the shape of the wings on the side of that plane, 
The law of lift will take over and it'll lift off from the ground. Now, I go 70 or more uh, most of the time in my car and my car doesn't take off. So it's not just one thing that does it. And I think that's the way some people do as far as their faith walk is concerned. They're trying to operate on just one thing. For example, the Bible says faith works by love. You've got to mix the unseen forces of faith and love together to get a result. A lot of people don't care anything about that love stuff. We just want faith. We just want to make our faith work. But you get an airplane because of the shape of the wing. You get an airplane going 70 miles an hour and the air going around over and under that, uh, that wing and the way that it's shaped will cause that airplane to take off from the ground. Now, do you have to know how it works in order for the plane to fly you from one point to another? This is the same thing Jesus said in Mark chapter 4. He says, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed in the ground and sleep and rise night and day and it brings forth fruit. He doesn't even know how. It's not necessary to know how everything works. And that's the way the devil does. The devil will bring these mental images. Well, how's this going to work? And some people bless their hearts. They get right in there and try to explain it to him. Why don't you just say, I don't know, don't care, shut up. And get your mind focused on the answer and the victory. Because anything the devil can do to try to draw you away from seeing yourself with the victory. is his means of influencing you into self-deception. Don't have conversations with the devil. Tell him what, what God said. Show him the picture of what God said about you. And leave it alone. He wants to engage you in debate. He wants to engage you because the more he can start worming his way into the situation, the more, the more likely he is to show you his picture instead of seeing you seeing the one that God gave you. What I'm trying to get across to you folks is that known forces, forces that we're all familiar with, can be overcome by unseen forces. And in the same manner as gravity can be overcome by the law of thrust and lift, in the same manner... The law of the spirit of uh, uh, the law of sin and death can be overcome by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And if you're saved, you already got that one. There are unseen forces, and that's exactly what Paul's talking about. He said the things that we're going through, the 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 attacks of the enemy, the trouble and the the inconvenience of the things here on the earth, don't last long. They won't be forever, but they'll work for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The mental images that the word of God gives you. See yourself with the answer. Refuse to give up on that. Reject any image of failure that comes to your mind. If you have to rebuke doubt, do it. If the mental images won't go away, just say, doubt, I resist you in the name of Jesus. I command you to go and then start speaking the word of God because every time you say that you're healed or you're prospering or your needs are met, whatever it is you're believing for, every time you say it, it creates a picture. Say it over and over and over again till the picture is so clear you can't get away from it. You do that and it's impossible for the devil to seal your blessing, whatever it is you're believing for. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. Thank you that you have made us more than conquerors. You've given us the victory. You've given us the blessings and the results of Jesus' conquest. Thank you, Father, that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We've been made prosperous 
The chastisement of our peace was upon Jesus as well. Thank you, Lord, that every spiritual blessing is ours because Jesus has conquered the evil one. Oh, thank you, Father, that we can be just as strong in faith as Abraham was by looking under the promise of God. Thank you, Father, for bringing to pass, causing us to have all those things that we believe that we receive, all those things represented by the people that are sitting here that have prayed in faith, spoken your word. Thank you, Father, that they are done in Jesus' name. All that's left for us is to keep our eyes on the answer and to glorify you for it. Thank you, Father, for victory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.